Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Joining me on the phone for the second time in my career, it is drummer Liberty DeVito. Of course, he spent many, many years with Billy Joel and then had a very public falling out with Billy Joel. And now he's got this new book called Liberty Life, Billy and the Pursuit of Happiness. And the greatest part of this is that Billy Joel wrote the foreword and all that negative karma seems to have vanished. They seem to have made up after all these years. And on that, uh, bonjour, Monsieur Alain. How are you? Bonjour. Uh, I'm good. It's a beautiful morning. It's very early, but it's beautiful. Yes, it is. Now, were you a, a fan of Billy Joel back in the day? I have to confess that Billy Joel did not connect with me. Um, I didn't quite get him. Um, but at the same time, I was connecting very strongly with a guy from uh, Asbury Park. Um, I bought his first album on import in the United Kingdom. I bought his second album on import. And when his third album came out, I thought, wow, we really have something here. And that was uh, Springbean. And uh, I was connecting to him rather than Billy Joe. Um, of course, the uh, the sad thing is, well, not a sad thing. It was actually a wonderful thing. Um, later in life, uh, one of the unexpected joys and privileges of my existence was I got to form a friendship with a guy called Clarence Clemens. And Clarence used to tell me tales from the old days. And now I find it hard to play a Bruce Springsteen record. But that's another story for another time. I can imagine. I can imagine. And uh, in terms of Liberty DeVito, I mean, his, his drumming style is very unique. You look at the uh, the Billy Joel albums that he worked on, and, and for a while there, they were really a band, even though it says Billy on the marquee, and it, it's sort of sold as a solo venture. There was a band going on there in the 80s. How important do you think it is for artists like that to have bands that stay with them you you know, you know you look at brian adams he's had mickey curry and keith scott and all that for god since at least 83 84 uh is there a validity saying that a solo artist needs a band that stays with them at all times like the e street band or is it okay to just sort of move along and go hey listen i used you for five years now i feel like i need a new coat of paint and i need a new drummer and i need to move on where are you on on the importance of having bands for solo album for solo artists i should say well let's start with neil young and crazy horse um i think the most energetic and powerful performances he's ever given is with what i would call his band crazy horse um if you want to look at nirvana for example i consider nirvana to be a singer songwriter with a band um and with billy joel uh, the tracks that I liked the best that Billy Joel um, released are the ones that I think you would suggest were when it was a band, although Billy had his name up above everybody else and over everybody else. But there was a, a period of time in his, in his early career where my perception, and I could be wrong, but my perception was that was a band with a band chemistry. And I think those were the the best best things that he put out. Um, again, you know, look look at Bob Dylan, um, Gene Simmons. When he was with the band, 
um, that was magical. Um, you get chemistry in a band, you have a much greater power and a much greater energy emanating from it. Um, you know, and just we're talking with a very broad brush here, but you know, there's that propensity that when somebody goes quote unquote solo or is a solo artist, there's a slight tendency or propensity to overreach and maybe stamp the music excessively with one person's persona and disposition. Whereas a band that cooks together is really magical. I mean, you know, right. the best of Guns N' Roses was when they were a band. Absolutely. And, and you know, we, we spoke about Martin Birch, the producer, passing away earlier this week. And when he was dealing with Whitesnake, for example... They were Bernie Marsden, they were Mel Galley, they were Mickey Moody. You know, they were a band during Trouble and during uh, Live at Hammersmith and Ready and Willing and Saints and Sinners, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then, of course, you know, David went off. And and now in 2020, you, you say, well, Whitesnake is David Coverdale. It is a solo project and always has been. But if you actually stop and look at it for for... For a period of, you know, 78 to 84, give or take a year, when they were there with Martin Birch and Bernie Marsden, it was a band. And the sound well, we, and the vision we, was very different. We, yeah, we, we toured Great White with um, White Snake in the winter of 1984 in the United Kingdom. Boy, what a pleasure that is. Touring England in the winter. Oh, my God. Cold weather, it's better and than Alberta. Women and uh, cold, <laughs> cold weather, cold women, and warm beer. Yahoo! Um, but I'll tell you, in 1984, White Snake was—I I would call them a gritty little band then. Um, you know, and John Lord was in there as well. But you know, that definitely had a feel of a band that had been playing together for a long time. Oh, oh, absolutely. And a great drummer. They, they had Cozy Powell playing drums, you know. Cozy, Cozy was a bit of a player, you know. I, I, I've heard that he uh, was able to uh, to turn a, a good... Do, do we call it drum riffs? No, are, are they riffs or are they beats? Drum beats? Drum whatever passages, fills? Um, it's and, the energy. It's the drive. It's the swing. It's the push. Yeah. Cozy had all that. And can you imagine that on Cinderella's Long Cold Winter, a lot of that was recorded by Cozy Powell? I did not know that. Yes. Uh, it, well, he, here are the two truths about some of these no hair wonder, bands. No wonder those tracks felt good. Yeah. L listen, two of the greatest secrets in rock are that you McDonald played bass on pretty much every Bon Jovi album from the very first one. He he's, he plays bass on Runaway, and Fred Curry doesn't play on Cinderella albums. He was the live drummer. It was uh, well. Speaking of Billy Joel, his current drummer Chuck Berge, I believe, played on some of the early know, Cinderella stuff. It, it's it's amazing. Do you know what's ironic about that? No, go ahead. Do you know what Chicken Curry? as we used to call him, because he, he, he came and played out with GNR when we needed a, a replacement drummer because of, you know, some silliness. Um, but Chicken Curry 
after being in Cinderella, moved to Nashville. And do you know what he was doing in Nashville? Uh, music holding, for TV? Holding down a reputation as being one of the go-to recording drummers. Isn't that ironic? It, it kind and of is. I believe now he... I believe now... Um, Good old Chicken Curry does a lot of music for TV and films and is doing very well. Yes, um, out in L.A. But Yeah, but uh, good old Chicken Curry. Had, I, I really liked his, his personality and, and his energy. He was, he, he was somebody I would take out for a lunch on my own with him because he was good company. He was fun. Fun kid. Fred is absolutely fun, and, and I'll tell you one thing. There was a, a time back in the mm, 90s, I guess it was, 96, 90. I, I'm trying to think when it was. Anyway, I was out in L.A., uh, Los Angeles, and there was a Hard Rock Cafe, and I did the very touristy thing, and I said, I'm going to go eat at the Hard Rock Cafe because, you know, that's what tourists do. And literally the table over was Fred Curry and his parents. And I and sat, who? and his parents. So it was oh, mom, mom and God. dad. Yeah. So so I sat okay. there, and I just went, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, I'm, and, I, and, and finally, I just said, you know what? I'm going to go say hello. And so I went over to Fred, and I said, listen. I said, I'm never going to meet you ever again in my life because, you know, I'm just Mitch, and, and you're the guy in Cinderella. But uh, you're coming to Montreal in a couple of weeks or in a couple of months, and I'm very much looking forward to it. I have my tickets, and thank you very much, and I can't wait. And he he said, well, give me your name. And I said, okay, I'll give you my name. So I gave him my name. He said, oh, when you get to the uh, to the forum, you you go to the box office, and there'll be a there'll be something waiting for you. And I went, okay, sure, whatever, you know. But thank you. Uh, and of course, this was way before cell phones, so there's no pictures, there's no nothing. Anyway, I get to the Montreal forum, and I have my tickets, and I go in, and I see the box office out off to the right, and I went, oh, you know what? I'll go stand in line. Let let's see. So I go to the box office and I said, hey, uh, blah, 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 uh, do you have anything for, for Mitch LaFon? And they went, yeah, we have a package, you know, an, an envelope. And I went, really? So he gives me the envelope and in the envelope there's tickets, uh, better than the, the seats I had, and uh, after show passes. And I was like, motherfucker. You know, it, like, like three, four months later, he remembered, he took my name, he kept it. You know, and there was no email communications. There was no cell phone communication. He really just, from that Hard Rock Cafe, remembered, remembered the city, remembered the day, remembered the name, and left passes. Like, who does that? I mean, you know. Chicken, chicken curry would, because he's, a, he's, a, he's got a good energy about him. He's a, he's a, he's a good soul. A absolutely. I, I really like chicken. Yeah, and, and, and can you imagine, though? I mean in this day and age, you know, with, with texting and stuff, you'll go to a show and somebody say, oh, I'll put you on the guest list. And you go, okay. And you'll get there and there'll be nothing there. And then you got to text this. And it becomes a whole production into itself. It's, it's a whole different show. You know, <laughs> when you go to a show, there's a whole other episode before the actual show. Yes. And, and, and yeah. Fred just remembered. And, and I was nobody. What, I wasn't doing what, interviews what then. Else, what else does, does that tell you about Fred? Fred respects and understands the excitement that people can get about going to a show. I mean, there was, you know, when uh, GNR played the Budokan in Japan the first time, um, somebody in production came and said, we have a bit of a problem at one of these doors. 
and uh, I said, okay, what's going on? And I went over to this, this store and there were about five or six U.S. sailors um, begging to get in. And they were sailors and all that that means. And, you know, what they contribute to our lives in that they're a, they're a defense. I'm not out there with a goddamn rifle. You know, they're out there flying planes off aircraft carriers. So I went, I snuck them in. I said, come on, guys, come on. And snuck them in. And they were just so over the moon and so excited. And that's what it's all about. And one little thing. One of them gave me his cap with the ship on 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 the brim. I still have that cap. See, see, so I've so there is there, yeah. there is still good in life, even uh, even if uh, well, anyway, good good on them, good on Fred, and uh, another another tribute to Martin Birch, and of course Liberty DeVito, his new book Liberty Life, Billy, and the Pursuit of Happiness. Uh, is out September 7th, uh, 2020. And as we say in uh, Montreal, well, actually, I don't know why I'm introducing the show. <laughs> I should be getting on to Liberty. Here is the one and only Liberty DeVito. We are speaking with a drummer, Liberty DeVito. The new book, Liberty, Life, Billy, and the Pursuit of Happiness, uh, out in July. Uh, as we say in Montreal, Liberty, bonjour. How are you? Bonjour to you. <laughs> I'm well. Uh, Montreal. Oh, I love Montreal. What a beautiful city. It is a it is a fantastic city, and I know you've played here many times with Billy, and and I think you've done the uh, the jazz fest as well, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, just a great place to be. Um, yes. Let us talk about this book, and you know the the last time we spoke, uh, you had done that documentary, Hired Gun. We were talking Slim Kings. Uh, talk to me about this this motivation to get your life story and the story of, of recording with Billy down in a book. W- was it cathartic, to say the least? Well, I've been, I was writing the book for like 15 years, ever since the breakup of Billy. And, uh, you know, you, you write a page or two, and then you put it away and say, ah, that's a waste of time. And, but over the years, I uh, accumulated a lot of writing. And um, I went back, because a friend of mine... Uh, Simon, uh, he um, said, you know, I think you've got something here. You just got to reread it. And because I'm older now and you see things differently, you know, with the passing of time, you, you change, uh, your whole attitude changes. And there was a lot of things in there that I guess I said in hired gun, uh, but, you know, rekindling the friendship with Billy has changed a whole lot of stuff. So I, I, I rewrote a lot of things and, and made it, uh, you know, what, how I saw it and how Billy kind of saw what he was doing. I, I kind of looked at it from that point of view. Like when, when, he, when he, I got cut off, why did he do it? And I understood more of why he did things that he did. You know, I mean, his name was on the marquee, not mine. Well, okay, so, so let's explore a little bit of that because when we spoke last... There was a bitterness. There was an anger. You hadn't spoken to, to him in a while. Uh, we talked about uh, about uh, Chuck Berge, and you were you were sort of upset with him. Um, when, you, when you go back and you re-examine this now, now that you've made up, how 
does it just feel like a, a weight's been lifted off your shoulders that, that now you can sort of get, get the anger out and just get back to enjoying life? It has definitely. You know, there's a lot of things have happened since uh, Hired Gun. And, um, you know, one of them was reuniting with Richie Kanata and Russell Javers and playing those songs again. You know, we go out of the laws of 52nd Street and we play all the songs that we recorded with Billy. And, um, you know, I got to look at them all over again. And I, I felt the enjoyment that I had felt when I played with Billy. And I thought, like, why, why am I so upset about this? You know, it, we're, we're getting old. We're losing friends all around us. This has got to stop. I mean, a friend of mine, uh, she said, uh, it's great that you guys are, are friends again, because it would have been sad to think that the music that we loved all our lives you know, ended the way it ended. But now now it's, uh, it's a good thing. It, it really is. All right. So we'll explore that uh, down the street here. But uh, just real quick, when you look back on these albums that you've made with Billy, we, we know one thing is that you had Phil Ramone as the producer for, yeah. well, I guess it was a good 15 years, you know, about seven, eight, nine albums. Talk to me about yeah. what, what Phil meant to you and, and meant to the sound and meant to, to Billy as, as an artist. Well, Phil Ramon, he was, he was the member of the band that was behind the glass. He w had the same sense of humor that we had. Um, he was older than we were and much wiser in the music business, and we called him Uncle Phil. He taught us how to play in the studio. I mean, uh, you know, he taught me that people want to hear two and four. They need to be able to dance. You know, he, he, he really took Billy and he honed his songs. He would change parts around in Billy's songs. He was a very, very strong part of the, of the whole uh, production. He, he really was. Um, when we get over to Stormfront and, and Mick Jones, how was that for you in terms of, first of all, accepting a new producer, but also having a guy who's in Foreigner, who's in another band, who, in a sense, might is competing for the sort of same Billboard chart and the same concert, uh, you know, take? Uh, w was that a, an easy adjustment, or was that like, hey, wait a minute, why are we having the guitarist from a band come in? Why, why don't we just do this ourselves, then, if we're not going to use Phil? Well, as you know, Billy uh, changes over every album. And like from The Stranger, the, the way it was recorded, like a pop album, and then the 52nd Street was more of a jazz influence, and then Glass Houses was just the band, you know, more of a rock album. And, a t and then Nylon Curtain was the tip of the hat to the Beatles. Stormfront was, uh, Billy wanted it to, to be uh, guitar-scented more. And so that's why Mick Jones, he actually uh, was uh, going after Eddie Van Halen, but Eddie Van Halen was doing something uh, before that, so he couldn't uh, produce the record. So he got Mick Jones, and I remember being in the studio with Mick Jones and having to almost prove myself to him after all the hits that we had had, because now he's a new producer in the, in the producer's seat, and I have to prove myself. And we played a couple of tunes, I forget what tracks we recorded, but it wasn't until we did the Down Easter Alexa and the drum part that I came up with on that, uh, you know, the classic part that, uh, about being a boat and making the, that whole vibe happen, that Nick said, that's the Liberty DeVito I was looking for. You know, so, yeah, I had to prove myself to Mick. Which is kind Very of fun. But, but then he used you on his solo album, so obviously you made a lasting impression, right? 
I think I did. You I did. Think I did. <laughs> um, I want to talk about the uh, the Havana trip, the Havana Jam back in 1979. Obviously, as as an American, you weren't allowed to go. As a Canadian, we were allowed. I've actually uh, vacationed there twice in my life. Um, but what was that like for you? Because there was it wasn't just a gig. It was a political statement. It was a political show. There was a whole like, oh, the Americans are coming. Um, was that a, an exciting moment, a strange moment, a, a, a stand up and, and make a statement moment? How, how do you sort of look at that? Well, it was it was an exchange thing uh, between the, the Cuban government at the time and the Americans. And so 150 people went. I mean, we went, Stephen Stills went, uh, uh, Stan Getz was there, Weather Report, a whole bunch of different bands. It was five nights at the Karl Marx Theater. And um, it was very exciting. I mean, we were watched. Uh, there was guys with uh, rifles sitting on the beach watching what we did. We weren't allowed to talk to the kids or anything like that. Uh, we were kept separate from everybody. and um, But it was very interesting because every time an American band went on, the next band that would go on would be a Cuban band. So it was a, a, there was a relationship that was happening between the Americans and the Cubans. I mean, it was so close. They knew all our material. Uh, we went on last because we were the biggest band on Columbia at the time. And uh, it, was, it was very exciting. And it was a great lead-up to going to the Soviet Union in 86. Which was another great moment. Uh, just quickly, as a drummer, though, when you get over to Cuba and you see some of the rhythms they're doing and some of the salsa and some of the different kind of music that they're doing, did you pick up anything? Did you buy a drum there? Was there anything where you just went, oh, okay, I haven't seen that in the States before? Well, we weren't permitted to go and buy stuff or, or you know, we had to be on a tour. If, uh, say, Weather Report played one night at the Karl Marx Theater, everybody had to go. You couldn't stay behind. Uh, so we had to stay together as a group. Uh, we went to the Copacabana one night when, when we had some time off. Everybody went as a group. Uh, so there wasn't any opportunity for most of us to venture out to do things like that. But um, listening to the rhythms, you know, the music on the radio that, that was being played at the time or or in these clubs like the Copacabana. You know, I always say it like this, like when a, a guy from Long Island is trying to learn uh, Cuban rhythms and stuff like that, yeah, it sounds great. But once you hear the guy that actually comes from Cuba that grew up with those rhythms, it's like tasting my mother's sauce. She came from Italy. She's going to make a great sauce. This guy comes from Cuba. He's going to play great Cuban rhythms. You know, it's like you... you live that part and you can hear that they live that that rhythm yeah it kind of makes me think of as a montrealer when i went to hawaii and i actually had a real pineapple rather than what we get in the stores up here you go oh <laughs> now i get it right? yeah yeah exactly you know it's like going to new orleans and hearing them really play that 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 second line stuff you know it's no joke they live it yeah they really do all right so uh, let me ask you about a couple of chapters that that were you know, very hard to read in the sense that they, they make you cry. They, they, you, you feel the emotion. Uh, the first one is, is the story of your brother, Vinny. Uh, yeah. I, I was reading that and I'm going, wow, that, you know, as a reader, it affected me. Um, for you to write that, how much of that was pain and struggle and you get through it and you tell the story, but at the end of it, you go, you know what? I've done him well. I, I've told his story 
Um, talk to me about, about that chapter, writing it, and just a little story about your brother. Well, my brother was a, was a great, great brother to have. I mean, you know, he used to come to all the shows, and I, I, what I remember the most about him was it was was when he'd come to the show and he'd come backstage and, and he would say something like, uh, you know, I don't know what Russell Jabbers does. Russell plays rhythm guitar in the band. I don't know what Russell does, but when he stops playing, wow, you really miss it. So he would critique the show. He would say, like, when we, he goes, the show is great, but when you got the piano man, I wanted to fast forward the tape. You know, <laughs> he hated that song. But um, I really wanted to tell his story because he really didn't live long enough to really have some kind of you know, story except that he found himself after all those years of abuse and then had a family and then this tragic uh the age hit him and it was tragic you know so i tried to see it through that those eyes you know and my parents how they suffered you know it's like Nobody should lose a child. No, you really shouldn't. And, and then uh, the other one that, that really struck me was the story of Doug uh, Stegmeier. Yeah. I, I mean, just an awful, awful um, ending. Talk to me about that and, and getting that, that, that call or that moment where you hear, hey, Doug's no longer with us. Um, boy, was, was that one sort of rough to, to write as well? Yeah, that was really hard. Um, you know, when I, when I found the relationship between him and his, and his, his dog, I, I could see, I, I knew the love that he had for his, his dog, Mordecai, and I could see this, this, this man that was really a loner, but could, had, was capable of loving. I mean, he loved the guys in the band. He loved playing with Billy. And when that was all taken away and, and, and the dog had died and he tried to come out of the hole that he, that he was in, I just don't think that there was enough love around him at the time that that's why we say we all could have done more for Doug. And it was a shame that we let him slip away. It it, it, it truly was. And, and as you point out in the book, part of it was being fired from the band. It was just sort of hard to, to come over. Um, but I, I want to also focus on you because you have a chapter at the end there called Rebuilding Liberty. So, you know, you're, you're fired from the band. You do hired gun and, and listen, it was reasonably vitriolic. And I mean, you were just pissed off during that, that recording, right? I mean, let's, let's be fair. We'll call, we'll call a spade a spade. I mean, you, you were, you were kind of pissed off. Um, then you go get this, this knee surgery, which for a drummer must be devastating. And you're like, oh, I'm going to have yeah. to tell the story about how I love Billy's band again. The hell with it. I'm just going to go make up with Billy. But talk to me about rebuilding right. Liberty and sort of getting back to being that guy, that guy from the 80s that everybody looked up to, that guy that was in Billy's band. The guy, you know, uh, because you, you sort of did have to do a rebuild. Well, you know, you know it's, it's, it, it's, it's funny. When people used to go, when fans would go see the show now, they would, they would write me and they go, you know, uh, Chuck is good, but he's no lib. I used to always be like, you have to say he's good. Why can't you say he's no lib? That's it. <laughs> you know, that was the anger part of me. But now that that after suffering with the leg and thinking like, oh my gosh, it's over. It's totally over. I had to rethink everything. And one of the things I had to rethink was, am I still angry at Billy? And I, I wasn't anymore because I realized 
that anything you do in life, you really have to sit back and think like some of it was probably my fault, you know, uh, and, and, you know, talking to Billy, you realize that, yeah, a lot of it was your fault. Uh, a lot of it was his fault. A lot of it was things that we thought was somebody's fault. We don't really know, you know, so rethinking the whole situation and then being able to sit face to face to him was fantastic. You know, it was a, it was a release. It was a total release that I have my friend back again. Why was it, though, for, for all those years that you couldn't see the good? I mean, you look back, Turnstile, Stranger, 52nd, Glass Houses, you know, on and on. Sold out shows. You go to Havana, you're, you're representing the States. You go to Moscow, you're representing the States. You're... And instead of looking back and going, well, that was a pretty good run, you were like, eh, F Billy, the hell with him. Why, why were you not able to see all the good for so many years? Well, for when when the uh, the firing went down, I was living in that moment. I mean, it was hard to listen to the songs on the radio when the Lords of the Second Street were inducted into the Long Island Music Hall of Fame. I, in the beginning, I opted not to go. I'm not going. I just don't want to deal with it. A friend of mine who worked for a drum company, he said are you ready to go back there again? You know, like to re, revisit uh, those songs and all that stuff. And I was like, I don't think so. I, I just don't think so. I wasn't ready yet until this knee surgery kind of had me laid up and like, okay, my life is going to be over being the drummer, not just the drummer in Billy Joel's band. I have to get out of this hole. When you're in the hole, you can see the light at the end of the tunnel, but you don't know what's on the outside of it. You're still trying to get to the light, you know? Once I found that light, then I, it was, like, beautiful. I, I, I realized that I have great fans, uh, great people around me, my wife, my children, and um, it's just a beautiful thing. And why don't I have Billy anymore? He was, um, I've been with Billy longer than anything else besides my parents were my parents. Billy was the longest. And, and a very great relationship, uh, you know, in terms of musical output, it was certainly something to, to you know, to be jealous of. Um, Slim King's Lord of 52nd Street. Uh, talk to me about playing in those bands and, in a sense, having to go back to old school and, and being in the clubs and, and probably bringing in your own drums and probably, you know, and doing your own sound checks. What was that like? Was that humbling in a sense? Or was I like, no, I just got to do what I got to do. Enough was enough. Uh, how do you sort of look at those gigs? Well, you know, it's funny because they say, never forget where you came from. And that's what actually happened because at the same time as, as the Billy thing fell through, I got divorced from my second wife. And, you know, you lose a lot of money when you get divorced. And um, so I had to dig myself out of that hole, too. But I never forgot where I came from, you know, coming from the clubs and, and not having money. And, and I had to reinvent myself, too, with still with the reputation that I had from Billy, but still say, staying, trying to stay humble as the person that I was in high school and, and you know, coming up through the, through the ranks with Billy. So that combined, I think that that's what made me come out and be the person that I became today 
to be able to want to make peace with Billy and, and have him as my friend again. Well, it's good to have him as a, as a friend again. Um, just real quick on the knee surgery. Uh, we sort of touched upon it that you look at him and go, wow, I'm a drummer and I don't have knees. There goes my career. How are you in terms of, of physicality now? Is everything back to normal? And was there a moment of great fear where you just went, dang, this is done? You know, was there a fear? Well, yeah, of course there was a fear. I thought, uh, you know, I'd roll in bed at night and think that my my career was done. I, it was over. And, you know, uh, you, you can you think about like, well, what, what would life be like without Lib, you know? Uh, as the drummer, or even as the person anymore. What am I going to do? Uh, I, I don't have it anymore. But now, you know, I kept going to a physical therapist, and she kept encouraging me and saying, like, it's going to get better. You're going to see. It's going to get better. I mean, I was taking uh, pain pills and, and uh, opioids and stuff for the pain. It was horrible. Um, but it's better now, and I'm, I'm actually playing better than ever. I had to learn all the Billy parts over again, because those Billy parts that I created for those songs are, are unique parts. It's not like just sitting down and playing a blues riff or sitting down and playing a straightforward tempo. There's parts involved there. And um, I had to relearn them again. And with the Slim Kings, it was great because the Slim Kings is a, an unknown band. So every place we play, we got to lug the gear in all the time. Uh, so it's, it's fun. I, I love playing clubs again. It's great. Yeah. We, we, we love our clubs. Um, one of the things I find interesting in the book here is you talk about the albums individually and you actually go through the songs, uh, one by one. Uh, what was that like for you? Cause I, I would imagine you, you probably had to sit with the albums and re-listen to them. You, you probably just didn't do this all off of memory. You, you know, you probably had to go rediscover them. What was that like to sit there and read this? I'm assuming rediscover these albums and go, oh, yeah, listen to that. That's kind of cool. Um, was that a fun thing to do to sit and listen to these albums again? Well, you know, it, it, it's funny because my wife, when we drive in the car and a song would come on, she goes, this is when I was still angry. She would say, like, what do you think of when you hear these songs? And I, and I said, I think of how much fun it was. I, I'm go right back into the studio. And yeah, it's true. Uh, I went to Sicily to visit my family uh, over there. And on the flight back, I listened to every song that we did. And like when you get up to until the night and stuff like that, you think like, wow, we were, pretty, we were really good. <laughs> you know, that was really good because I never really listened to the records after we were done with them. You get done with the record and you move on, you know, but listening back now and, and uh, hearing people like we have this great uh, singer that takes, that does the Billy part. His name is Dave Clark, a uh, wonderful singer, great piano player. And he talks about those songs. Like when I hear him talk about them, I'm like, holy cow, man, I guess they're pretty good, <laughs> you know? So yeah, to listen to them again really brought a, a new light to them. Did you do the, the typical sort of creative mind thing and listen to them and go, oh, I should have done that fill there instead. Like, do you start like rethinking them or you just take them for what they are? No, well, first thing, uh, everything I play is great. No, I'm only kidding. <laughs> That's right. That's why you're being no, copied was... these days. That's right. <laughs> no, no. Uh, yes, I do listen to some of those things, you know, and, and think, well, I wish I didn't do that there. Or, or I hear mistakes that I made that you can't hear because they actually fit 
mistake. Well, uh, mistakes um, give you charm. I mean, we have to. We have to. Let, let's just put this on the record. We're in a Pro Tools environment where everything is sterilized. The great thing about the '70s, yeah. whether it's Billy Joel or Black Sabbath or Cheap Trick, were the mistakes because they gave them charm. Yeah, and, mistakes uh, were big. Um, we were we were taught when we were with Phil, if you make a mistake. Play it really loud because it might be the greatest thing you play all day. Well, that's exactly it. Um, let me just get back to to uh, Billy Joel for a second in the terms in terms of writing the Ford. So, okay, we know you're angry at each other for X amount of years. You have this breakfast. He leaves on his motorbike, but then you get him to write the Ford. How how endearing was that to you, and how important was that? I mean, to have breakfast and you know hug and say hey, we're sorry. That's one thing, but then. For him to say, all right, you know what? I'm so over this nonsense. I'm actually going to write this forward for you. How, how important was that? It, it showed me, um, as, as much as I wanted him back as, as my friend and I wanted him in life, I think he wanted me back as his friend and to be in his life too. Uh, and, and what he wrote was, was so fantastic that I, I teared when I, when I read it. And I called my wife in the room, and I, I said to her, I said, you've got to read this. I cannot believe that he wrote this. This is so great. You know, uh, I mean, it was very special. It was a special moment reading that. It, it really was. And so now, now that this fight is over, I have two questions on that. And, then, and I know we have to wrap up in a second. But first, how bad do you feel now about the Hired Gun movie? Do you sort of wish that would just sort of disappear? Or it's like, no, it's, it's what I felt at the time, so be it. And 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 second, do you see yourself doing any work with Billy in the in the future? And we're not talking about coming back with the band, but maybe a guest spot at at Madison Square Garden or a guest spot on the next album. Do you see that possibility, or was just really just we made up, we've closed the chapter, everybody move on? Well, the hired gun thing, I, I, I don't regret doing it because I it was the first time anybody heard my side of the story and Russell's side of the story with Billy. And, um, but as, as you know, it's kind of like, I'm going to give him a shot in this and try to send him to the mat. And then he came out with an, an article that, uh, said something about me, which sent me to the mat, you know, it was like, okay, enough of this. This is enough. We're, we're saying things that we shouldn't really be saying because underneath we really don't mean that, you know? Um, so, Hired gun was a good thing, and and it, it was all true. Everything I said in there was was true. But but you know, getting older and stuff like that, like I said, you see things differently, and um, you know, and the, and the knee, the whole thing that happened with the knee really changed the way I feel. You know, and like in the Don Henley song, when he went, uh, uh, what's the name of the song uh, about forgiveness? Um, uh, I can't think of the name of it, but he, but he says, you know, the it, it'll the hatred will just eat you up inside, you know, and, and, and that's what it was doing. It just kept going on both of us, you know, um, just doing stupid things. And I'm glad it's over. Yeah. But as far as playing with them, as far as playing with them, um, I don't know. I, who knows? We, you know, we didn't even talk about that when we met. We just, we just, uh, you know, chatted about uh, things that are happening in our life. We talked about who died, who's alive, who's been sick. You know, I talked about children, and that was it. We didn't talk about much music. It was just two old buddies seeing each other again. 
Well, and that that's good to hear. And I think it's it's good to hear uh, from the fan perspective as well, because a lot of us, when we saw Hired Gun, we went, holy, f- what is that? And and yeah. it's nice to go, hey, you know, you read the book and you go, ah, okay. You know, everything's back to normal in this world, pandemic notwithstanding. Uh, Liberty Life, Billy and the Pursuit of Happiness uh, coming out in uh, July, July 14th. Uh, Liberty, always a pleasure. And as we say in Montreal, merci beaucoup. Well, thank you. I won't try to say that word, but yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> merci. Mer- yeah, you can do it. Anyway, uh, thank you, Liberty. And uh, whenever uh, the Lords of 52nd Street or Slim Kings have something, let's let's do another one. Oh, it's, it's a great pleasure. Cheers. Bye-bye now.